the goal of both is basically to restore, if you think of pain or dysfunction as like a frozen river. So the blood delivers oxygen to the tissues and takes away metabolic waste. Pain and dysfunction comes when the blood can't flow properly and there's a, it's impeded. So mm. one of the main tenets in osteopathy, and that's why it's similar to Chinese medicine, is there's a saying saying the rule of the artery is supreme. And what that means is that when there's good blood flow, then there's health. When there's pain and you think of a strain or a sprain, everything gets tight and the blood can't, you know, can't do its proper job, can't flow basically. So that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But it's really interesting because once the structure is fine, the function is also is interrelated. And that's another tenet of osteopathy that the structure and function are interrelated. So Mm. for the function to be good, the structure has to be strong. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Shift with Shibra. I'm your host, Shibra Benetti. I'm a certified sleep consultant for adults and children. I'm also a baby science program instructor and an Akashic Light Eating practitioner. And on today's episode, we have John Marshall. So Dr. John Marshall's expertise is in osteopathy, but it also includes acupuncture, dry needling, and cupping. He's a principal osteopath of Back and Health, and it has three clinics here in Singapore providing integrated care. He has a massive passion for keto, and it led him to study osteopathy and acupuncture. He's the founder of Manual Medicine Australasia, an organization that teaches manual medicine practitioners such as osteopaths, chiropractors, physiotherapists, and other allied health professionals in dry needling, cupping, acupuncture, and osteopathic techniques throughout Australia, Southeast Asia, and Japan. I wanted to have this conversation with an osteopath because having been through a number of, let's say, injuries, a number of bodily issues throughout the years, I predominantly have seen a physiotherapist, and you would have hopefully come across a conversation that I had with Melanie Myers, who talked about physiotherapy. And I've been seeing Melanie since I was about 21 years old, quite a few years ago, almost 13 years ago. And I have always predominantly seen a physiotherapist. And then I recently, because it wasn't necessarily an injury, but just sort of like joints, I saw a chiropractor. And then I was also told maybe go check it out an osteopath. And I found it very interesting in terms of the assessment of an osteopath. They're looking, from what I can tell, they're looking definitely at tightness of muscles as well. But I was also informed about like, maybe I have to look into my diet and my nutrition and also how my organs are working as well. So that kind of gave me a little bit of a, hmm, interesting. Do osteopaths look at more than just, you know, muscles as well? And what do they look at in comparison, you know, as opposed to a physiotherapist that might be looking more at functional movement of the body, you know? what does a osteopath look into in terms of functionality? Do they look into other things? So we are very, very honored, very, very privileged to have Dr. John Marshall come on today to talk about osteopathy, to just give us a breakdown about what it really is, who does it really serve and for what purpose does it really serve? And then, you know, how do you know that you need to go see an osteopath? Why would you need to go see an osteopath? So I hope you enjoy today's content. I hope you enjoy the episode. Do write into us if you have any suggestions about future episodes. Like the episode, share it, subscribe to our channel, press the little bell button so that you get future updates. We post every Monday here on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook, as well as our audio streaming channels, which is Google, Apple, Spotify. And we hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I'm so glad that you're here. I have read your profile. It is quite, it's very, very informative and so jam-packed, but why don't maybe Dr. John Marshall, you tell us what is your journey of leading you up to where you are today with regards to osteopathy? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on your program. It's an honor to be here. So uh, how long do we have? (laughs) I hope I don't bore you too much with the details, but my, I guess, journey in manual medicine started about 22 years ago. I was a bit longer than that. I was living in Japan for about seven years. So I went to study Aikido, uh, which is a Japanese martial art that I've been doing since 10 years old. And I'd taken, I I arrived in Japan at 21. I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. So I took a gap year that became a 10-year gap year. So a gap year became a gap decade. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. So it was meant to be a year in Japan. And then I was, you know, to find myself and see what direction I wanted to go in. And that one year, I mean, you know, 
Tokyo in 1996 was such a fascinating place. I was 21 years old, and to say I was wet behind the ears was a massive understatement. I think I was uh, swimming underwater. So it was, you know, it was a great time in my life. I did a, an instructor's course in Aikido, which was pretty full on. And at the end of that, you know, I had a, a few niggles, some injuries. And a friend of mine was seeing an acupuncturist. And this professor was actually the head of the Beijing University of Traditional Chinese Medicine. They had a branch in Tokyo. So I went there and he, this guy was like magic. And in hindsight, all he did was he did some orthopedic tests on my shoulder, knew what the problem was straight away, needled me. And I think I had two sessions with him and I was cured. And I was just wow. like... Rah, this whole kind of field. And, you know, I was kind of interested in manual therapy, thinking of kind of shiatsu or something, because I was in mm. Japan. And mm. this avenue just opened up. And so I, I attended a, it was a two-year diploma course in Chinese, it was Chinese acupuncture and tuina, which is kind of TCM awesome. massage. Mm. Yeah. But the teacher who I had was very skilled at manipulation. So that kind of, I mean, I love needles. But this is even 22 years ago. Acupuncture was still relatively unknown in Australia. There were... A few courses were just starting, but you know, you tell people you did acupuncture and they're like, ah, I have a needle phobia, you know, you're not yes. sticking needles in me. Whereas now it's kind of well accepted and kind of trendy or whatever. <laughs> but um, at that time, yeah, people just, it wasn't as popular. So I really enjoyed the acupuncture, but I was really leaning towards kind of manual therapy and I was really interested in, you know, manipulation and stuff like that. So a friend of mine, I went back to Melbourne and I was telling a friend of mine I was interested in chiropractic and he's like oh, don't do chiropractic you're gonna do osteo osteopathy i'm like what's that you know and yeah. osteopathy is quite a hard word to say people are like you know is that something to do with bones and, yes. and we'll cover that later but it was it just opened up another world so i found out about that in about 2000 did some study i was still living in japan at that time i finished my diploma in acupuncture and then yeah i applied for rmit which is quite a famous university in australia and i got accepted so yeah that was my seven years in japan was coming to an end and so this was the next chapter i guess mm. it's quite a full-on course it's a five-year course right. it's a at that time it was a three-year bachelor two-year master's but you needed the full five years of study to practice and so after that i went straight into a master's in acupuncture and a lot of people thought i was crazy then but after doing five years of uni you know you're so used to, to studying i just thought I had the summer to think about it, whether I'd do it. And it was a part-time master's by coursework, which meant people flew in, they had like four blocks a year of mm. five days at a time. So people from all around Australia and around the world flew in for it. It was very intense. It was like 8.30 till 6.30 for five days. And then there was a lot of work. So that was half a semester's worth of work. Yeah, so I kind of, after I finished that, I started fusing more kind of, because I was working as an osteopath at the same time, fusing more kind of acupuncture and osteo together. So I guess that's kind of my niche. You know, all my patients, most of them, I would say probably 80 to 90% like a combination of both. Hmm. Some are just dead against it. Like, oh, I don't want needles, you know, so that's fine. You know, it's just another tool in the toolbox that we can use. But I find that most people have a irrational, or maybe it's a rational fear of <laughs> needles, but I have to convince them that the needle is actually, the gauge is about 20 times smaller than a hypodermic needle. Yeah. So it's literally hair thin. People are almost disappointed. They're like, I thought it was going to hurt. I'm like, well, <laughs> you can make it hurt if you want. But so yeah, that was kind of my journey academically. I went on to do a, a graduate diploma in animal osteopathy. I haven't really used it much in Singapore. It's predominantly treating, well, we learned dogs and horses. And they said that if you can treat dogs and horses, then everything pretty much in between is, you know, very similar. So yeah, that was quite fascinating, but it's something I haven't really, I did that in, I finished in 2016, but I haven't actually done much with it. My path brought me to Singapore and, you know, I started obviously back in health and Singapore headache and migraine clinic. So yeah, that's where I am now. Yeah. That's, that's a that's a full on journey. I mean, yes, yeah. I was just looking at your profile because you've got the master's in osteopathy, you've got the master's in acupuncture, you've got the, you do Pilates, you're a personal yeah. trainer, you're a functional training specialist, you were... Mm -hmm. The Olympic Taekwondo team osteopath for Australia for a yep. while and you're also a lecturer in Chinese medicine in osteopathy and you also are a lecturer in the International College of Osteopathy in Japan is it where you're speaking in Japanese then? No, I actually have a translator but my, oh, okay. my everyday conversation is not bad that's very good Japanese by the way <laughs> it's not too bad but when I was studying at the Beijing University of TCM that was it was quite funny because the lecturer was Chinese, speaking Japanese and translating mm. into English. So, I mean, his Japanese was amazing, but I, I wasn't really familiar at that time with anatomy and physiology. And yeah. the terms 
as you know, in English are hard enough. You know, obviously it comes a lot of Latin and Greek and, and other derivatives. But in Japanese, it's a whole different language. But also saying that though, with the kanji, it makes it very simple because that's true. if you look at like, for example, esophagus, you know, if you don't know、mm. what an esophagus is by reading it, you know, you know, you have no idea by reading the word, but in Japanese, it's like food road, you know?、Right. And it's like, well, yeah, it is. It's the food road. The, you know,、so、yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. a lot of sense. Or like small intestine, large intestine, it's just basically how it's written, quite easy to. Yeah, but I must say that I've been a long suffering student of kanji. And... <laughs> I'm also not a very good kanji student at all. I don't know if I'm a very good kanji student at all. I cannot at all. I cannot because well, I I, I'm too much. Because I studied Chinese as well as a kid.、Right. So mine is all in Mandarin and not too simplified Mandarin. So I have zero. <laughs> so kanji. You're actually got a head start though because writing is good. The reading, I mean, you just have to learn the reading. But I find it's one of those things that, and I guess like, like speaking, but more so. If you don't use it every day、yes. and write it every day, you just lose it. And so, like, I've, I have, you know, the top 1000 kanji book that I've gone through for、yes. probably 20 years. Yes, and I've, yes. Learned and, I've learned and forgotten it more times than I remember. But yeah, I mean, everyday conversation is good. And I, because I do go to Japan, well, pre COVID,、yes. uh, quite often, it kind of takes a day or two for you to recalibrate and then it、okay. kind of just comes back. But yeah, it's, I, I was lucky I was there for seven years and I made a concerted effort to study. and For those, this is got nothing to do with osteopathy. <laughs> I know. Those, those who have been to Japan, Tokyo in particular,、mm. you, know, you, can get, you can get by without speaking Japanese, although it's a massive disservice if you're going to be there a long time, then you should、yes. at least try and simulate and learn. But anyway, yeah, no, but yeah Japan is a wonderful country, and I yeah, hope to get back there as much as possible. Mm, me too, me too. At least every couple of years, I like to take a pilgrimage to, to Japan in a way. Yeah. I feel like that one part of my past lives would must have been there. But anyway, on, on to actual osteopathy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe let's get into it. Like, what is osteopathy, right? Like, I think some people understand physiotherapy, they kind of get chiropractic, and then someone throws an osteopathy, and you're just like, is it about、yeah. bones? Yes. <laughs>、yeah. So basically, it comes from、um, the word osteon and pathos. So, osteo, osteo meaning bone, and pathos actually means suffering. So, the idea, it's kind of. Uh, the, the founder of osteopathy was a man called Andrew、uh, Taylor Still. And he was,、uh, to, give you a bit of, to answer this question, I just got to give you a bit of history because、Absolutely. he was the son of a doctor and he was a Civil War surgeon. So he pretty much did his apprenticeship on the battlefield. And if you think about medicine back in those days, probably the, you know, it was very unhygienic, obviously, and people, probably more people died of the surgery than of the actual problem.、Yeah. So, And also, you know, common prescriptions were arsenic,、yes. <laughs> opium, and other things. So it was quite, compared to what we have now, it, it was quite, the standard was quite damaging to all the patients. So、yeah. he kind of came out of that era. He lost three of his children to spinal meningitis, and he kind of felt a real disillusionment, I guess, with the standard of medicine practice in that day. So he believed that a lot of suffering came from the musculoskeletal system. So a lot of people think it's bone therapy. It's actually, pathos is actually suffering. So what's included now is probably built on that foundation, but it includes a lot more. So it's not just about bones. And this is a, a typical misnomer that people often ask is it, they'll say, like, is it my muscle or is it my bone? And it's actually interconnected because the muscle. Attaches to the bone, of course. So, if the muscle is tight, then the bone isn't able to, or the joint can't act in its normal range of motion. So,、mm. you need to treat both. I mean, they both heavily influence each other. And for the sake of studying, we separate them, but they're actually, you know, they have a very similar function and they need each other. So, yeah, that's probably just a simple background on osteopathy, but it's used to treat a whole variety of musculoskeletal. Problems at the very basic level. It's also used to treat like respiratory disorders, gastrointestinal problems, so visceral kind of things. So it does have a wide range of、uh, applications.、Mm. But how it's practiced in America, it originally comes from America in Kansas and it was officially launched in 1874. So it's actually quite an old system of medicine and it's widely practiced in America. But how we practice it in Europe and Australia was influenced more from the UK. School of osteopathy,、right. and it was a student, students of the founder went back to England、mm. and they kind of developed it, and it kind of went in a separate direction.、Ah. In America, osteopaths are actually doctors of osteopathy, so osteopathic physicians. So they're actually similar to GPs, they、mm. work in family medicine or in surgery. So, plus their medical training, they do another four years of musculoskeletal medicine. So,、right. it's a very comprehensive course. Whereas in Australia and England and 
New Zealand, for example, it's a five-year course. Some courses are four years, but it's pretty much you can go from high school straight into osteopathy. So similar to like physiotherapy or chiropractic, you, you know, you don't need to study medicine first. So although we get there's a courtesy title that we get a doctor it's not the same as like an osteopathic doctor in america which right. is known as a do so we're not do's yeah it's kind of evolved separately so our system we work more our education is heavily focused on anatomy physiology pathology so basically we do all this all the medical subjects but we don't do surgery we do osteopathic technique and it also aligns with the chiropractic course because at rmit the course is done side by side so oh. The first three years, all our science subjects are done together. So they keep changing the title of the bachelor. When I did it, it was like the year before I did it for years, it was clinical sciences, which sounds cool. I got bachelor of complementary medicine, which kind of sounds, eh, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> but uh, but it was the same course. It's just universities love renaming courses after a while yes. for a variety of reasons. And I think it, at that time, the chiropractic, it was the same as well. And then our master's was in osteopathy and theirs is in chiropractic. But in that first three years, they would study, we would do the same subjects, but we would do osteopathy prac and they would do chiropractic. So the overlap between, and this probably might come a little bit later, but yes. the overlap between osteopathy and chiropractic for many years in Australia, it was just lumped together. So it was under the same registration, mm. which infuriated probably both professions because while there's a lot of overlap, there's quite a lot of difference as well. Mm. Let's talk about the differences then, if you can. Okay. Yeah, so I think basically the... Well, the similarities of the techniques are very, very similar. Okay. You know, we both do spinal manipulation. The techniques of spinal manipulation may be called different things, but it's heavily very similar. Osteopathy, I can, I'm an osteopath, so I can only really speak for osteopathy. Basically, the main tenets of osteopathy is the body is a unit. So what that means is every region, there's an interdependence of region. So if you hurt your knee, we don't focus just on the knee. I'm not saying chiros okay. do, but I'm just yeah. saying from an osteopathy point of view. We'll look at, okay, what is that affecting? So yes, the primary concern is your knee, but what's that doing to your hip or what's that doing to your ankle? Because dysfunction after a while, there'll be compensations throughout the body manifest you know, in a variety of ways. So the term holistic gets thrown around a lot. And I'm, I, it is holistic, but I don't mean to be like peace, love and mung beans kind of holistic. It's basically the body is all connected. So we don't think of it as like just one part. We think of it as a series of independent kind of parts. So with chiropractic, from my understanding, a lot of it, they also do, of course, extremities and all the rest, but heavily focused on the spine. So adjusting mm -hmm. the spine. And one of the main differences is probably care, as in uh, chiropractors often tell their patients they need to come quite regularly, like some up to two or three times a week. This is a massive generalization, so I don't mean to sure. offend anyone, but I get told this a lot by my patients. Whereas in osteopathy, we have a, there's a, a tenant called find it, fix it, leave it alone. So one of the principles of osteo is the body is always striving for optimal health, but sometimes there's roadblocks or obstacles in the way. So our job is to remove those obstacles and let the body strive for normal health. So we try not to over-prescribe treatment. And saying that, we don't just say, okay, come twice and then never come back again, yeah. because maintenance, especially in our everyday world now, and during COVID and the lockdown here in Singapore, you know, people were spending a lot more screen time, time on their computers, and I'm seeing the results of that now because all the consequences of that now, because a lot of patients come in, you know, they're working from home, the setup at their desk may not be optimal, even yes. though a lot of a lot of companies do provide a good infrastructure and, and they pay for like a standing desk and all the rest, which is crucial because ergonomic considerations are massive. Yeah, sorry, get back on track. But the main no. difference is, no, it's, it's quite... It, it, it's all related as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So... Again, it's best to speak to a chiropractor about exactly what they do, but we try not to, you know, give our bombard them with a lot of treatment. We just like to, we often say between three and five treatments initially, depending mm. on the problem. And then if they need to come back, some come back fortnightly, some come back weekly. Yeah. I don't really ambulance chase. I find that like people, if you kind of like, where are you? Come back. Like people don't really yeah. respond well. So I just find that I, I try and educate my patients that we give them tools rather than me, like I'm coming to fix you, I put the onus on my patients in that where we're going to be working together, you need to stretch, you need to take care of yourself as well. So there's no real magic bullet. And I know that frustrates some people because they just want, you know, I've got back pain and they're like, I want an x-ray, I want an MRI. And yes. it's like your case history, there's no red flags. There's nothing suggesting you need an MRI. And even if we have an MRI, that may not explain your pain or discomfort. So, you know, the symptoms and sometimes imaging, we have to 
the case history and the orthopedic tests, we put more weight on that than the actual scan. And we can yeah. talk about scans if you like, because that's another thing that I think people don't really understand when it comes to lower back pain in particular. Yeah. Like an MRI, for example, you're a lot younger than me, but I'm uh, 45 now. If you ran like a... Uh, I've had a, like, quite a few MRIs though, because yeah. of all my numerous injuries. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's a horrible machine to be put in, but... Um, it's not fun. Yeah. But if you had a look at 100 asymptomatic people and you just got them MRI'd on their lumbar spine, for example, up to 40% of those people, so over 40, and it goes up about 10% every year, will have a disc bulge or some kind of anomaly mm. in the spine. Now, and some, but they're completely asymptomatic. So disc bulges, and when I say bulge, again, this is another topic is you've got a slip disc, you've got herniated. There's so much confusion about that. But we're talking about the between the vertebrae is the intervertebral disc and there's different kind of stages of sometimes it's it's pushed out a little bit and that can irritate the spinal nerves which cause pain through the body but most people will be asymptomatic but if you looked at that it's like oh i've got this disc bulge it's not causing any pain it may be but it may not be causing any pain it's kind of like variation of normal when you get older and what that means is it's more kind of just wear and tear as you get older your bones do all that they do regenerating you know age unfortunately does catch up with all of us but by if you just see an x-ray and you know your doctor says you've got arthritis it's going to freak everyone out but of course arthritis doesn't mean you know there's different types of arthritis what they usually mean is osteoarthritis which is basically wear and tear and degeneration the other name for osteoarthritis is degenerative joint disease which sounds a lot worse but basically it just means we're getting older so Mm. in osteopathy that's another difference we don't use a lot of imaging as a diagnosis if there's red flags, we will refer in Singapore, I refer to a doctor for imaging, but it's not, we don't base a diagnosis strictly on an x-ray. Okay. So what is your diagnosis? Like how do you yeah. diagnose then? So usually the case history gives you probably about 70 to 80% of information. So the case history will go through a system screen. So you present a complaint, a history of your complaint, but also a general system screen. So for example, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, ear, nose and throat kind of stuff. And so we're looking to kind of, you know, narrow things things down. So through the case history, you can discount a lot, but it's leading you into a certain direction. We then confirm that with an orthopedic assessment. So we do tests that will, you know, test the orthopedic, like the muscles and bones and joint. That's, and we rule out anything sinister. So for example, sinister would be things like possible tumors or which are called space occupying lesions. And that's they're what we call red flags. So kind of like, you know, sharp, you know, kind of pain that doesn't go away, night pain, unexplained headaches like that mm. come on after 50, for example. There are a few things that kind of lead you to like, okay, this is potentially serious. Yep. Or, you know, they've got sharp numbness and tingling or pain in their legs or arms. You know, you know, some of them, these can be hospital, they can be emergencies that, you know, we need to call an ambulance, an ambulance immediately too. So thankfully it doesn't happen very often, but from the case history, we will know it kind of, it's like a funnel and it mm. funnels down what we're going to do. So the author, the case history, orthopedic assessment, and that includes, we do a neurological assessment as well. So cranial nerve tests, to see if there's any abnormalities from a neurological point of view, you know, and if there is, then, you know, we give them the, you know, we refer them to the appropriate healthcare provider. So, so we don't claim... So what is a cranial ne- neural test then, for example? So cranial nerves is basically assessing the cranial nerves. So, you know, the nerves that come out of your brain that may be affecting your vision, you know, uh, hearing balance, etc. Et so it's a quick scan that we do. It doesn't take long. We use this particularly if people are coming with headaches and migraines, mm. if there's any kind of visual disturbances. So yeah, we're trained to, you know, to take a proper, go through the whole neurological system. And that includes also muscle testing as well. So it's quite comprehensive. And, you know, we test reflexes and it's something that, you know, we don't prescribe medicine or drugs. We pretty much know when to refer on, but we pretty much do everything uh, with our hands. So, and the osteopathic techniques that we use can be soft tissue techniques, which look like massage, but you don't come in, it's not like an hour relaxing massage Mm. the idea of the the soft tissue technique is basically to release the muscle so we get into the joint and move that around so a lot of practitioners now do dry needling which is a version of acupuncture yes what is the difference for dry needling and acupuncture then (laughs) it's a great question the facetious answer i give is two days or three years Um, two days is usually dry needling is based on western anatomy and physiology so it's taught to physios, osteos, chiros, those that are already clinicians and have a, a grasp, substantial grasp or their 
doctors in physiotherapy or chiropractic because they already know the physiology and anatomy, what we teach them. And I also run another company called Manual Medicine Australasia. That wasn't a plug, but it was a uh, No, 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 it's been mentioned. That. We've been mentioning. It. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I teach a lot of the senior students of those disciplines as well as medical professionals. And you know, the criticism we get is that it's only two days. How can you teach people to needle? But they already have the, the background knowledge of anatomy and physiology. What I teach them is how to apply the needle or how to tap it in properly but where to put it, but most importantly, where not to put it. So yes. it's extremely safe, but obviously with the spine and the thoracic cage, you have your lungs there. So we don't go perpendicular, obviously, because that can cause pneumothoraxes, which is lungs collapse, which is a very serious problem. So all of them, you know, it's taught for, with safety in mind and it's very simple. So if you know your anatomy, you're never going to cause any any problems. So, mm. so basically um, with dry needling and acupuncture, one, as you said, it's two days and three or three years. Yep. Is it just is it just about the muscles then and dry needling and acupuncture is about energy points then, right? Pretty much, yeah. So we, we talk about the neurophysiology of the points. So it has a, for the muscles, but it also, the you know, the autonomic nervous system, the neurology, it kind of regulates that as well. So it works in so many ways that, you know, we still don't know how it works, but it's very, very effective as is acupuncture, but acupuncture, I would say, is more holistic in that pain or musculoskeletal needling is like this much of what acupuncture can do. It's like the iceberg. I don't know if you know the iceberg meme of like, you know, success, you know, and you see the top of the iceberg, success, and under the water, it's like, you know, determination, you know, years of sacrifice, blah, blah. So I find that from using that analogy, pain to treat pain using acupuncture is the tip of the iceberg. Mm. From a systemic point of view, it can treat far more. So regulating, I use it a lot for gastrointestinal problems. So it's down a different kind of rabbit hole and it's more, I think it's more complete. But for physios and chiros and osteos who use dry needling, pretty much dealing with the musculoskeletal system, I wouldn't say only, predominantly. predominantly. Mm. And the results you get are very, very good. I don't teach a lot of, there are a lot of different kind of methods of dry needling. Some are very aggressive which, you know, you peck it and they want that twitch response. I find it's not necessary. Once the needle is in, it's already causing a response throughout the body and it's very subtle. You don't need to kind of you know, dig it in and all the rest. But the goal of both is basically to restore, if you think of pain or dysfunction as like a frozen river. So the blood delivers oxygen to the tissues and takes away metabolic waste. Pain and dysfunction comes when the blood can't flow properly and there's a, it's, impeded so one of the main tenets in osteopathy and that's quite similar to chinese medicine there's a saying the rule of the artery is supreme and what that means is that when there's good blood flow then there's health when there's pain and you think of a strain or a sprain the, everything gets tight and the blood can't you know can't do its oh. proper job can't yeah. flow basically so that's a very simplistic way of looking at it but it's really interesting because once the structure is fine the function is also is interrelated and that's another tenet of osteopathy that the structure and function are interrelated so mm. for the function to be good the structure has to be strong right. so it's kind of an interesting um, i'm not sure if it's a difference between other forms of manual medicine but i think it's like that mountain you know yes we're all going up the same path you know people take different paths but the goal is essentially to make the patient feel better Mm. get out of pain and mm. to be able to restore activities of daily living yeah. and w whatever path you take it's like whether it's osteopathy chiropractic acupuncture the goal is very similar mm. and to go further more into that i find it's the practitioner that's more important you know mm. it's i wrote an article about this because people often ask me what's the difference between chiro and osteo and physio so if you do look on our website, and this is not that I need a plug for back in health, it is under the, it's actually under a frequently asked question. Okay. And it does address that. But the point that I like to make about it is it is about the practitioner and that relationship you have with them. And yes. so I don't like, I don't, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, this guy's good or this guy's not good or that therapy is not good. I think that's very, it's not necessary. And, you know, other health practitioners, you know, kind of criticizing other practitioners is also not good. I think once the patient and the practitioner, it's a very symbiotic important, relationship. Yeah, symbiotic. That's a great word because that's exactly what it is. Mm. There's great practitioners, there's every average practitioners in every every field. field. Yeah, yeah. So you just need to go and find who who gels with you. So yeah, I think that's absolutely. really important. Yeah, and in terms of like the so you mentioned the kind of health problems in a very big area, right? So you're talking about yeah. skeletal. So that would be. For those who don't know what musculoskeletal is, but it's very like like bitten, pains Muscle, in limbs, joints, joints yeah. that kind of thing. Then yeah. you talked about respiratory and gastro. How is that treated in osteo? I mean, yeah, I mean, 
yeah, it, it's using more like mechanical techniques to influence the lungs and there's specific techniques that we use on the viscera. So using... What's a viscera? Uh, sorry, the viscera are the organs. Okay. It's like a visceral kind of feeling. Right. This is a visceral treatment. Visceral osteopathy is actually heavily influenced by the French, like the osteopaths. They did a lot of research on it. And so they actually, by manipulating certain organs, like literally pressing on them or doing specific techniques to them, you can actually influence the function of them. So for example, constipation is a big one. I usually find a lot of, my, especially my female patients have a propensity to more kind of constipation and that can be like cycle related or whereas, um, and another area I treat is also migraines and headaches. Mm -hmm. And there's also a heavy connection between migraines and irritable bowel. Yeah. So, and that's just the, uh, another coming back to the, the body's a unit. So yeah. your headache isn't here and your stomach is here. There's a, you know, that, that symbiotic relationship, but also you know, the connection between the gut, you know, we talk about gut health and brain health. And you know, the Chinese medicine has been saying it for years, but it's kind of like a new buzz mm. thing the, now. The, last the gut few years brain that, connection. Yeah. 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 And I mean, if you think about it and your diet is just, it's massive. And, and that's why diet therapy is so important. And you know, I'm kind of, I'm very interested. I have so many interests. I'm trying to try and bring them together. And I don't mean to be like a jack of all trades, but you know, we have to have a substantial knowledge about, you know, different things, mm. uh, but diet is just so important. And, you know, you can tell when you binge on something and you just feel crap and like, you just want to do this. And when you eat healthy, you feel good. And there's massive, you know, there's a psychological component to that as well. And I usually find that you need to, through our treatment, we don't just put hands on, we need to kind of have that relationship. We call it the biopsychosocial model. So the patient isn't just a patient with headache, they're a person. So every person comes in with a unique story, their mm. unique presentation. So we don't really have custom plans for, okay, migraine, we do this, or headache, we do this. We need to think about the whole person. And yeah. that's why osteopathy and Chinese medicine, it's all about the person. And we are, you know, you know the, a microcosm in a macrocosm as well and you know thinking you know peeling the layers off a person and you know why are they in pain you know and usually there's okay there's a somatic reason which is a body reason but usually there can be a, a psychosomatic reason yeah. there can be a visceral reason like the viscera can cause lower back pain as well mm. and if you think about where your viscera are they're hanging off your the front of your spine yeah so any problems with the viscera can also affect the spine so the connections are just yeah, they're mind-blowing. There's, there's so many, that. there's so many. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So then in terms of what conditions, I'm sure, as you said, there's hundreds, I'm sure, and there's mm. such a vast spectrum, but what conditions typically, can, or? yeah, typically do people go for to an osteopath in, in those okay. separate sections, for example, with musculoskeletal, yes. with respiratory, or with gastric? I would say probably the, the majority would be musculoskeletal. And that's how most of us are taught. There are kind of branches like this cranial sacral therapy as well, which you may have heard of. Yes. This is, so cranial sacral is, is actually originally an osteopathic technique and it has evolved. Dr. Upledger, who kind of founded cranial sacral, taught it to basically anyone who wanted to learn it. He set up an institute and you could learn it. So the cranial sacral is a little bit different from traditional osteopathic cranial technique in that, yeah, so there's different branches of that which I'm not too familiar with. I've studied traditional cranial technique and it's looking at the basically the, the cranial rhythm between the head and the sacrum and the spinal cord. So we use a lot of this for migraines, for babies, for people who can't, you know, get direct, like more of an aggressive technique. If I'm treating a, an 80-year-old osteoporotic lady, so mm. problems with her spine or degeneration of her spine, I'm not going to jump on her and try and pop her or manipulate her. Yeah. There's... A, it gives us a lot more options. So, I mean, that comes into the, the technical aspect of osteopathy. But to answer your question about presentation, it depends on what the practitioner has been trained in. Yeah. So musculoskeletal would be the basic. When I say basic, it doesn't mean easy. It means most osteopaths will be treating lower back pain, for example. Neck pain is huge, especially in COVID times. But traditionally, yeah. people seek out an osteo for back pain and neck pain. For shoulder, you know, we treat shoulders, extremities, tennis elbow, problems with the wrist, hands, pretty much any musculoskeletal problem you can think of, osteopaths can treat that. That's a musculoskeletal point of view. Yeah. The respiratory model is basically so problems with asthma or allergies. We would still use manipulation because the, the sympathetic nerves that supply the lungs come from basically T1 to T4, which is in right. the back 
back. Yep. So we'd work heavily through that, either with massage or manipulation. Mm. We would also do specific techniques with patient breathing and assisted breathing to, to treat that. The gastro stuff is more kind of visceral osteopathy. And because I, I'm, I kind of cheat because I'm an acupuncturist as well. So I treat kind of other stuff as well, both visceral stuff, other conditions. And I find that gives me a lot more scope in my practice. But yeah, I would say bread and butter would be kind of musculoskeletal pain. Mm. And then there's a heavy overlap between physiotherapy and chiropractic because yeah. we all treat similar things. Physios might, for example, use more electro machines, for example. And again, this is a generalization. They yeah. may work predominantly more in rehab, especially in hospitals, but they could work in you know the cardiovascular ward like in COVID at the moment and do a lot more kind of work through the respiratory system, I should say. So mm. yeah, we all have our own niches, but there's a heavy overlap. And yeah, going back, it's a hard question to answer, but if you do look at the frequently asked questions on my site, it does cover that. So yeah, okay. hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Off on a bit of a no, very, no, 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 no. Because I think that's really important for people to know that. So for example, if they were having something like irritable bowel syndrome or they're having Crohn's disease or, yes. you know, gastric acid reflux or something yes. like that. And for example, it may be tied towards sleep issues that's corresponding with the acid reflux that's also corresponding acid. to anxiety. Then mm. a possibility is to go see an osteo about that because it's yep. all three related. Whereas, you know, maybe that particular time you don't need to see a physiotherapist, right? But then Possibly, if you're yeah. talking about maybe because you had a knee injury and then you're looking at that particular joints and those muscles that are now, then perhaps there you can go see either, right? In, in exactly that right. Sort yeah. of time, right? Yeah. So, and if you wanted more rehab, I would say like if you've done an ACL um, and you want a rehab program, then, you know, physiotherapy, would, that's there. They do that really, really well. I would recommend my patients to, you know, continue with a physio. Sometimes I have patients that see me and, and a physio and a chiro. So yeah. they do that. Um, and we all work well together. One thing isn't going to, you know, contradict the other. Mm. But I think it's just having information at your fingertips about what people do. But also you need to do a bit of, as a patient, you just need to do a bit of research because there's, you know, Dr. Google, there's a lot of information yeah. out there and there's a lot of misinformation out there. But one thing I'd like to just quickly talk about is your area and mm. sleep yes. deprivation. I was going to come to problem. that anyway. Yeah, yeah. please go oh, on. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's massive because I see, again, with physical inactivity, it's this kind of vicious cycle that's set up between, you know, problems with diet, which will affect sleep. I know this is a, they all lead on to each other. Yes. It could be sleep. You know, you're not waking up feeling refreshed or nourished. You don't want to exercise. You make poor choices. And it kind of just spins out of control. And that's easy to happen. And there's no judgment there because, you know, once you get into that cycle, it's very hard to break. Yes. And I think, you know, nowadays, you know, smartphones ironically are making us far from smart. You know, our screen time is increasing, especially with COVID as well. I mean, you know, and again, there's no judgment there because, you know, a lot, a lot of us have been locked up and, you know, yeah. in other countries, people come from Melbourne and everyone's locked up at the moment and they're under a, a terrible uh, lockdown. Mm. So what, what are the choices? It's hard to stay motivated. It's hard to have a positive mind. But sleep hygiene is like, you know, one of the most crucial things I tell my patients. It's like if you're not sleep, if you're only <laughs> sleeping like, you know, four or five hours a night or you're up late and you're up early, it just leads to stress and anxiety. And it's it's like this compounding effect that, and I see it's concept of body armor. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, but people through sadness or through stress and anxiety start to manifest and you can see it through their yeah. body yeah. position. And you, you know, their shoulders are up. Yeah, the shoulders are up around their ears and it's like, try not to do it anymore. But you say to these people, relax. And they're like, I am relaxed, you know? Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. makes them even more tense. So I, I just say to them, don't relax. And they're like, what? And then they kind of relax. But I find that once we can get that weight off, you know, literally the weight of the world off their shoulders, mm. you know, they sleep better, they eat better. Oh, you know what? My neck's not feeling as bad anymore. It's like, I don't want to just continually see you twice a week and, you know, do the same thing over and over. You know, there's so much that the patient has to do. And that's what we we're talking about before. Yeah. The onus is we we're going to work together as a patient and as your osteopath. Mm. But we need to talk about sleep. We need to talk about diet. Because if those things are lacking, it's like, well, your treatment didn't do anything. It's like, yeah. well, of course it didn't. Because you got a bad pillow. <laughs> yes. From an ergonomic point of view, it's not working working out you're stressed that's leading to other problems and it just kind of there's this cascade effect terrible but if you get a good night's sleep how great do you feel in the morning it's like yeah, yeah. i'm energized okay maybe i'll exercise or go for a walk today oh my back feels good you know mm. yeah i i'm kind of pro movement one of the main maxims or principles of back in health is um movement is bliss mm. and it comes from founder of judo wrote this beautiful calligraphy and it really resonated with me because when we move we're happy 
Yes. And if conversely, when we don't move, it's, you know, we, we get tense, anxious, and that vicious cycle just keeps getting set up and, and it just manifests in all aspects of our lives. So yeah. Very much so. Everybody yes. needs to sleep well. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's my plug in there. No, but your, yeah. <laughs> it is so fundamentally important because, I, I mean, you spoke about the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. And I think for people who don't know what they are, could you break that down as well? Yes. Yeah, so basically, like the parasympathetics, it's easy to think of it like they're like a parachute of, of the body. So they basically slow things down. Sympathetic nervous system is like your fight or flight system where it's all, all systems go. And most people are living in that sympathetic you know the sympathetics are fired up so you know day-to-day life the stresses you know where it's all about go 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 you really need time to balance both systems you know and they work in the you know they work together they work independently and they work together as well and it's really important to you know you know another buzzword is like mindfulness you know but we really need to pay attention to our own health but we have to be mindful of that and you know breathing for example like most people think that they know how to breathe, but most people are apical breathers and they're just like, they breathe pretty much from here. Mm. Whereas, you know, in osteopathy, we say, you know, you, you breathe, well, from your pubic bone is basically yeah. at the bottom of your abdomen. It's like that you breathe from your abdomen and that you need to fill your lungs with breath because, you know, the breath is life, you know? Yes. Movement is life, stillness is death. That's mm. another motto as well. It's just like when you're not moving, it's like you're, you know, you're not living to your optimal capacity, basically. Yeah, so. I mean, you're not moving. You're either asleep or you're dead. So that's yes, yeah, exactly. Right. State, right. So, and as human beings, we were built to move constantly. Yes. So if we aren't really moving our body, then the blood flow starts to slow, and then when the blood flow starts to slow, then a lot of other problems also start coming up because the body is just not getting its usual yeah. framework because that's what it was built to do. And exactly right. Yeah, and in sleep is where obviously the sympathetics should be going down and the parasympathetic sort of starting to act yes. up so it can start healing yeah. the rest of the processes. But it's in recovery. Yeah. yeah, it should be recovering and resetting the entire system. And we actually have a another podcast coming after. It would have come just before this maybe in terms where we have talked about sleep with a okay. neuroscientist who studies sleep who said wow. sleep so uh, you know if, if, if people haven't caught that please go and watch that episode that was broken down into two parts because it was just way too much information that we just had to wow. like break that down but yes it's exactly that because if you don't sleep the research has pointed out that you know essentially parts of your brain regions that sort of switch off activity and switch on activity are not balanced and so therefore you're starting to have hyperactivity to go to sleep and because you're not rested, it's just ongoing and it can't shut down because it's got too much adrenaline or cortisol that's, you know, triggering it. And that's why you get this vicious cycle that you're trying to shut down, but you're so anxious to shut down. And she speaks better about it. I'm not very yeah, good no, at No, that was great. That was, really nice. that was a really breakdown. Good breakdown. So fundamentally important because everything gets regulated in all those stages of sleep. So yeah. if people are there are obviously going through respiratory issues, gastro issues, pain back pain you know and in terms of like what are the common things that you're seeing in your practice today in singapore which you're treating i I became a lot more interested in the treatment of headaches and migraines so i actually did have a subclinic in my clinic called the not a very imaginative name it's called the singapore headache and migraine clinic and it's straightforward we like that here it's very nice and straightforward (laughs) and basically treating headaches and migraines from a non-pharmaceutical point of view. And it's fascinating because about 80% of headaches and migraines originate from the top three cervical vertebra. Mm. And that is where your, what's known as your brainstem is. So basically where your spinal cord is and your brain connect, there's a little area called the, the brainstem. And it's also known, known as the headache hub. And usually like problems of those upper cervical vertebra can cause headaches and migraines. So there's usually, I mean, migraines are extremely complex and it's a bit of a dog's breakfast even in the literature and the research because there's so many overlapping contradictory kind of things but we've noticed that you know headaches and migraines especially post-covid are very very common and this comes from that vicious cycle that we talked about before headaches i mean the difference people often ask what the difference is and that is also hard to explain but migraines are usually very severe it can be one-sided or it can move around usually it's side locked but there can be a neck component to it as in a stiffness component Mm. but you'll also get associated like photophobia which is like a fear of light sound you know these people just want to be locked away and if you've ever had a migraine you want to be locked away in your room for a day or two it can come on you know there can be some signs beforehand there can be triggers 
these are a little bit hard to identify, but they can be food, it can be stress, mm. it can be for women, there's menstrual migraines, there's abdominal migraines, there's migraines with aura. So you start seeing kind of, the, you know, things flush before your eyes mm. or floaters in your eyes. And then there's headaches. So headaches tend to be less severe, not always, but, and they will go to certain parts. Like there can be temporal headaches. There can be frontal headaches, cervicogenic headaches, which come from the neck. But usually, and that comes back to the cranial nerve testing, certain symptoms and areas will indicate which segment of the spine is affected. So it's actually quite easy mm. to identify, you know, is it C1? Is it going over the eye? Is it like around like is it like a hat band distribution so i'm really more passionate well not more passionate so i still love my orthopedic i do sports injuries and all that but migraines is kind of where i really want to try and make an impact especially mm. in singapore because mm. they're just so prevalent and a lot of people like doctors throw med like pharmaceuticals at people yes. which is uh, you know in and it's valid in you know people just want the pain to go away mm. but it's like a band-aid it's, yeah. it's just treating the symptoms we want to try and find the underlying cause and we have found in most cases that it's usually coming from the neck so mm. if anyone's interested or you, you know if anyone knows anyone suffering from migraines and they want a different approach you know please yeah. explore the option because it's um it's non-invasive it's it's manual therapy the techniques from osteopathy mm. but there are also some physio techniques as well so there's the approach it's based on the theory of called the watson approach okay which is done by dean watson who's a quite a famous physiotherapist in Australia and he's done a lot of research in this and this course that I did is kind of open to physios, chiros and osteos and I've added like I use his techniques but I've also added my background as well and studying at Michigan State University I've done some postgraduate stuff there with Dr. Lisa DiStefano and who's one of the leading pediatric and cranial specialists in the world so I've had this kind of stuff that I'm putting together and or that I've put together and it works it's working really well so the thing about it, though, is that it's not a quick fix and yeah. we do require for people to do it. It's not just you have one and see how you go. We ask that people commit to at least four or six treatments because mm. for it to work, it has an accumulative effect. Whereas with osteopathy, we don't usually book like you need six or seven treatments. We just say, look, we'll do two or three to start with and see how you go. Mm. People are under any obligation, of course, if they feel like it's not working. And with the headache stuff, we usually get a good idea after four to six treatments, there should be significant improvement. And if there's not, then probably it's not for you. So mm. we don't just keep the unnecessary treatments, but it's quite the relationship between the neurological system, the brain, the muscles, the joints causing headaches and migraines. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the results we can get is, is pretty good. So That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. just on that topic about in terms, because you were talking about, well, um, somewhere in the middle of our conversation, we were talking about <laughs> babies. <laughs> but typically for, you know, if pregnant moms or just new moms are listening yes. in and they have children, what are some of the conditions they could probably see an osteopath either for themselves as a new mom or pregnant mom yeah. or for their babies? Yeah, for, for the mum, it's quite simple. There are a lot of structural, obviously, significant <laughs> structural changes during Definitely. pregnancy. Yep. <laughs> so during pregnancy, we provide treatment right up until, you know, from usually they say it's before conception, but right up until birth. So we can definitely assist in kind of the mechanical changes that happen throughout the body, especially through the lower back and the sacrum and the relaxing hormone that's released. But there's a lot of pressure that goes through the spine and especially the sacroiliac joints on the sciatic nerve as well. Sometimes they feel like the baby's sitting right on their sciatic nerve and it can give pain into the leg. So from a structural point of view, we can provide really care and treatment for a pregnant woman. Afterwards, of course, it's the same thing as their body is readapting. There's been significant changes that have gone through the, the spine and through you know the pelvis and all the rest. So we can also help with that. As far as babies, I mean, we treat anything from, you know, plagiocephaly, so kind of, of head shapes, mm -hmm. which most parents are quite concerned about. Again, working with a sleep specialist as well, we give advice on, you know, sleep. But for me, that is something that I would, you know, I would say, okay, I have this great, <laughs> I've got this great sleep specialist, you know, and handball them to you because that's more your area. But just to highlight the importance of that, yeah, and things like, you know, colic, respiratory distress, mechanical problems babies are actually quite easy to treat because they don't come in with a whole variety of musculoskeletal conditions because mm. they're still you know, in they're development infants. right yeah yeah they're, they're still in development and their their joints aren't stressed you know they don't get sore backs or sore necks because 
you know, they're pretty much before they're crawling and, you know, they're just lying there really, you know, and as they go through their different developmental phases. So usually more systemic kind of stuff is we can treat babies with through structural kind of techniques, but also through cranial uh, is very, very effective. So, and I've hosted Dr. DiStefano in Australia twice already, and we had a massive interest in that. So I get to, I studied under her in, in Michigan and I selfishly brought her back to Australia because I wanted to, like, this is, she's an amazing lady. And it'd be great to, if you want to talk to her someday, because yeah. she's at next level. And when she speaks, you just listen because she has so much knowledge about the human body. She's very passionate. She's a professor at Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. So we brought her to Australia for a whole series of seminars. So I've done her seminar uh, probably five or six times and I'm still learning stuff every day treating. So, yeah. That's amazing. That's one point of thing, yeah. And then we've taken it to a different level through my Aikido connection is that we've started through martial arts, through both Aikido and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, to try to channel children between the ages of four and six into motor skill development. Mm. Um, and this is a whole, this could be a whole different podcast, but I usually find a lot in children, and it's probably been since we were kids and, you know, you guys should get out and play more, but children now are, and especially with the lockdown and especially yeah. in Singapore, a lot of parents that I treat or a lot of adults that have children have brought their kids in because it's like, you know, can you get them moving? They just, they, they feel that their activity level has significantly dropped, mm. but more, more concerningly, it's more, there's a psychological component as well. Yes. Where people, you know, like Tommy was so active, you know, he was doing rugby, he was doing this and all these activities. And now he's like, he doesn't want to do anything. So, mm. which is sad. That's more the older kids, yeah. but the screen time. And, you know, I have a four-year-old, and a two-year-old and my four-year-old, you know, try and get the, we try and limit screen time, but, you know, try and get the iPad off. And sometimes it's like, you know, it's like a meltdown. And it's mm. like, so what we're doing with, it's called the Marshall Motor Skills Learning Program. Okay. We're taking kids from four to six. I probably didn't tell you this, but from yeah, four to me. six years of age. And we, we do a lot of game-based activities mm. uh, to help them develop motor skills. So the oh, idea fine. behind it, between three and seven is like a significant, probably the time of their lives where kids are developing motor skills. Yes. Whereas a lot of, and the focus is to put them in sports specific skills like tennis yeah. or yeah. soccer from yeah. the ages of three and four, whether they haven't really had a full exposure to different kind of motor skill learning. So if they don't hand eye coordination or balance or rhythm, and when I say rhythm, it's, it's mu- not so much music. It's more kind of like synchronization of movement in yes. a, Knowing how to connect the, yeah, their, their vision yeah. with so the movement of the body as yeah. well and things like that. Mm. So I became really interested in that in lockdown yeah. and I started doing some research and I, I did some certifications in youth exercise because mm. it was an interest of mine. But yeah. I'm kind of fusing the elements of martial arts, which is, you know, for example, respect, confidence and other things that come from learning martial arts, but also into game-based activities. So mm. yeah, no, they learn a bit of self-defense, but it's more on hand-eye coordination, balance, tumbling. Yes. Yes. orientation how spatial awareness how they see themselves and then when they get to seven you know they can join our regular program or they can go off and play soccer or you know they might be doing that before but they're going to be a lot I, more structurally able at that yeah, point to do that. with our kids we need, we need to give them basically movement experiences is probably the best way to describe it so yeah. they need a wide range of you know they need to tumble they need to jump they need to climb yes. and th- that's for their motor skill learning so this is coming back purely from a developmental point of view mm. but also just for their like their mental and physical development but the older children yeah i mean that's to also cut down the screen time and we all know it as parents it's yes. easy to say and like you know just turn it off but just turning the screen off you know there's a lot of resistance to that mm. it's like how do we make movement meaningful i guess and yeah. that's what i'm trying to address now so trying to do a few things but, that's amazing um, i i mean if you do have a course for parents where they can learn how to do this for their kids i think that's so important because yeah. even just with my three-year-old what i noticed with her so we've got her in taekwondo and yeah. in rock climbing because one i also know genetically <laughs> we're not very predisposed <laughs> to having very good arm strength okay yes. in my in yeah. my bloodline so i wanted her from the get-go to already start having that exposure to move her body that way yes. and also with the with taekwondo is also like self-regulation yes. you know, listening respect all of that because i also yeah. noticed that structurally as a child the head is such a large part of their body that yes. they will easily tumble because of the distribution of weight not being there so 
That's you know, point. obviously they should run a lot, but maybe soccer might not be the first thing right now until her body kind of fills out to balance yeah. her bit, a bit better that way, yes. for yeah. example. Yeah, I think the sequencing of when you put your children in sport, is it's a personal thing. Yes. But if you look at like three to seven is a great age, like, you know, just because they start soccer at four isn't going to make them amazing at eight or nine. You know, it'll help with skill set. But once they've got a good, well-rounded or, or yeah, well-rounded skill set, they can apply that in, in so many different areas. And so, you know, they've, they can run, they can jump, they can do a variety of, they've got all these movement experiences. Mm. Then when they get to seven, it's like, okay, I'm interested in soccer or I want to do Taekwondo more. Mm. Um, and, you know, martial arts children's programs are fantastic because they will incorporate all these elements anyway but we try and do it through game-based stuff because yeah. if you get, you know and i made this i've been teaching kids for many years and you know you, you try to get them lined up and you can't teach them like adults you have to understand yes. and the difference between three and four is massive the difference between four and five is massive so there's all these huge milestones and gaps and you know some children are ahead some are behind mm. and so you know the goal is I wanted to go earlier we, we may do a three to four class as well mm. i might have a bit less hair by then <laughs> But I found from four to six is really a good, it's just a, a, the window is so critical yes. for them to develop these skills. And I'm not saying that they can't later, yeah. but, you know, if, yeah, if they can have that, you know, especially like soccer skill, like most, I think sports, like there's some statistic, again, 60 to 70% of youth sport is usually with a ball. So mm. it's going to be soccer, it's going to be football or whatever. So, yeah, they do, but they need to learn rhythm. They need to learn hand-eye coordination. Mm. And all these components are into connected they're not separate so yes. we try and combine it in this program so it's kind of I can't think of the name of it my, I should know motorskillssg.com I think but I'll, I'll give you I'll drop you the link anyway yes please and we can put it in the show notes as well below yeah because I so, think that's really fundamentally important if I mean the, one of the things about this conversation is that I really like is about because it's also about obviously people finding where they need to get help but the other yeah. thing that I think my own personal motivation is that it's because I'm in the parent space and we yes. are raising the next generation. And, you know, the, given the world that we are in today and what we're facing, you know, politically, you know, environmentally with diseases, yes. all of this kind of stuff, it really kind of rests in our hand, this responsibility of creating a much more <laughs> better able generation to yes, kind absolutely. of fix up a lot of the mess that has happened over the last couple of decades. So educating and bringing awareness to parents about, you know, it's and, and not just being like, oh, well, my mother taught me that. Yes. yes. Okay, great. But let's go with, you know, what is the, let's, let's go into the science of it. Let's really look at yes. the studies and understanding why at each age, these different things matter. Why is it important that kids make mess? Because if they don't make mess, then they don't know how to clean up the mess. If they're only yes. going straight to clean up, they don't understand mess. And it's very, very difficult for the brain to understand. So all of these things are so important. And then again with movement as well and then with movement comes health and then yeah. so on and so forth and good sleep habits are instilled a childhood already it's yes, going to go, yeah. go for a lifetime so everything is really interconnected if we have a chance to work on our kids being that not with putting too much pressure on them but at least going with awareness then we have an opportunity to have a much brighter future i guess i like that i really like that and it all comes back to developing healthy habits yes. and you know because we're told to brush our teeth from when we're young but we're not told to you know, bend our knees and do some gentle stretching so our back feels good or move or run and jump and tumble because it's good for our body. Mm. So establishing those habits as parents, you know, we, it's, it's, I always think of it like, you know, nourishing. So we've got a, a seed, you know, so, some seeds you can put in dirt, you know, or in a garden the, and they may not grow, but if we can nourish it, we can water and look after it, yeah. it's going to flourish and thrive. Yeah. And there are children, that's what we have to do as well. We have to give them the best opportunities they can yes. from a mind and body, you know, and the, the neuroplasticity as well. The brain is, mm. it's not, it, it's always, you know, those neurons are always changing and, yes. you know, making new neural pathways and, you know, and kids can learn like just super quick yeah. with languages. We don't speak Mandarin at home, but my son's at a school where they do like one day's English, one day's Mandarin. Mm. And, you know, we had the parent-teacher interviews and, yeah. like, you know, is he looking at, so my son's name's Will, it's like, yeah. is he looking at, do you want to continue with Mandarin? I'm like, yes, we do. And it's like, well, he has a good aptitude for it. Mm. So you need to nourish it. Like, but he does have the potential, which is great because, you know, you know, we're going to have to nourish that. But they were just interested in that. Is that something we wanted to pursue? And it's like, with languages, he's already like, you know, you know, I, I speak English and as I mentioned, a little bit of Japanese, but they're just, they're like sponges. And yes. 
language is just so important. So yeah, I don't know how I got into that topic, but <laughs> the so the languages is important, but just giving them different experiences mm. with health, with mm. nutrition. Yeah, it, it's it's really crucial. It's very so. paramount for their health and upbringing and, and yeah. maintaining. I mean, if, if the one thing I think every parent usually, I won't say every parent because we never know the circumstances every child comes yes. into it, but I would say the majority of parents always we're we're wired to want the survival of our offspring right and to have a like a long-term effect of sustaining life as long as possible on this planet they need to be healthy and and to do health it's good movement good sleep good fueling so good diet great connection you know good relationships with people and and then you know hope for the best that (laughs) will you be able to you know interpret the world to then have a great life that's what holistic health is that's the fundamental you just summed it up in a nutshell all those things that you just said that's what holistic health is Mm. because it's our relationship with others with ourselves most importantly because if you don't obviously have a good relationship with yourself then you can't you know communicate with with the community yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely i think just to i mean we've had such a great conversation and i think we just need to wrap this up but what is the shift that you want to create with your work in the world Ah, that's a great question. I want to basically help as many people as possible. I know it sounds a bit cliche, but help comes in many forms. So there's nothing more powerful than being able or satisfying, I should say, and that's a selfish thing because it's, it's not about me, but being able to help someone who is in significant pain, but also how to keep them out of pain. So mm. we want to, and that's the whole, you know, back into health or back in health is means we want to restore you to how you should be. And when you, and it's what we just talked about, when you feel great, you, everything just, it's a cascade from there. Yeah. Everything just, it's like a, the stone thrown in the pond. I know we're getting a bit cliche, but it just ripples out yeah. and, and ripples into all aspects of your life. So mm. if I can help as many people through that, and that's through osteopathy, through movement, through martial arts, in any way, you know, if I can help one person, I've been blessed and I've had great mentors that have helped me. And it takes a village to raise a child. It takes, there's so many different components that it takes to raising people. And that's what I want to help with. So if I can be a, a small link in the chain to help people, then uh, I'll be happy. So yeah. Yes, me that's too. my passion and that's my purpose. Yeah. We all- yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, John, for joining yeah, us pleasure. today. And I'm so thrilled that you came on and I look forward to more conversations, hopefully in the future together. With absolutely. You. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks thank for the you. opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Absolutely.